Good morning, listeners. Today we have a very special guest. Today we are joined by Courtney Warren, and Courtney did a very interesting TED talk on self-deception. And the reason this grabbed me is I had a wonderful Romanian student once, and I wish I could do her accent. And she said, David, you are a cynical optimist. You will describe exactly how bad everything is and then try and fix it. And it dawned on me when I was listening to Courtney's talk that my form of self-deception is to see things worse than they are and then try and counter it by improving them, which is my way of balancing out my own self-deception. So let's learn more about self-deception. I'm here this morning with David Orney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. And of course, we have a very special guest with us, joining us from Nevada, no less, Courtney Warren. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's delightful to be on your show. So, Courtney, how close to Area 51 are you? And did you see weirdos? <laughs> I'm actually not far. It's If you drive from Las Vegas to California, you're pretty much undoubtedly going to go through Area 51 and uh-huh. see jerky advertisements as well as advertisements for alien spottings. So, yes. <laughs> That's a great way to start. We've already got aliens in the podcast and we're only a minute and a half in. Right. That, that, that's way off the uh, normal curve. Now, let, let's aim at the normal curve. How and why did you get interested in self-deception? I became most fascinated by self-deception as I went through graduate school. So I'm a clinical psychologist. And as I started learning about the primary theories of human nature and how you utilize those theories to help people grow and evolve in a therapeutic context, one of the most obvious things that I saw in myself, in my friends, in my patients was that when people get stuck and don't seem to be able to shift or change out of a state that they're currently in. So often it was because there was something so obviously true that they could not acknowledge. And until I could get myself or my friends or my patients to see reality clearly, we were absolutely going to stay exactly the same as we were in that exact moment. Because you can't change something that you can't admit. And we are so focused on safety as humans. We really, really don't like acknowledging things that hurt us or that predispose us to feeling pain. And in that way, we can really keep ourselves in very stuck places because we aren't able to see what we are doing that is contributing to a situation that is keeping us very unhappy. Yeah. And that's really where it started. I think sort of my version of that and going back to the intro would be that one of the things of being blind and using the cane all the time is everything is potentially dangerous. So there is such an mm, innate basis mm-hmm. in me for a negativity bias because most things are going to hurt. Most things are going to potentially be a problem. Most things are going to be able to confuse my plan of working around the sighted world. So I remember being right. very acutely aware even as a kid. I think I probably naturally would have been an, a, an optimist, but being blind pushed it towards a pessimism. But somehow... I don't know how or why I became aware enough to always try and counter it, to go, okay, you've explained exactly how awful it can be. Now what are you going to do about it? 
that somehow I built in that transitional step. So it sounds like what you're describing here is that most people, for some reason, didn't work out that they needed a transitional step to go, hang on, let's look at you know how you see the world and go, is that objectively true? Would someone else be able to verify that? Or is this just something that suits keeping your psychological state stable, even though it's delusional? Absolutely. I think that's a really accurate depiction of what most people do. Because the first step in getting really objectively honest with yourself is being aware and being able to ask questions, as you just said, about the validity and accuracy of your beliefs. And one of the reasons that's so hard is that we really tend to think that our thoughts are true. So if if you ask the average human, well, I think this, they already have decided that their conclusion or their belief is accurate. The truth is that most of our thoughts are incredibly biased and incredibly flawed because they go through whatever filter it is that you need your thoughts to be filtered through for it to be reflective of you. And so in that vein, most of us are very protected against questioning our core beliefs, our core thoughts, even the the minute-to-minute thoughts that go through our minds, which may be negative or positive, and then thinking about, well, is that really true? And why is it that I believe that's true? What evidence do I have that that is actually reflective of reality? And what function is it serving me to try to defer all of this data that I may have to say my belief is actually flawed? Why am I doing that? Why do I need to believe that the world is more unsafe or more negative or more more positive than it actually is. And I think there's so much opportunity for learning about yourself when you start from the platform of, hmm, let me look at myself almost from an observer's perspective and let me try to analyze what I see. What are my reactions? What are my feelings? What are my thoughts? And what can I learn about myself by being open to questioning what I think and why? This, but it takes a lot of risk. Yeah, this we've talked about. I can't remember who we talked about it with once, but it was this point that they did a study in a university and they gave people the choice of sitting in the room with their own thoughts or giving themselves a mild electric shock to get out early. And something like two-thirds of the male participants and one-third of the female participants gave themselves the mild electric shock in order to not have to sit in the room with their own thoughts. So it would seem to me that the risk of self-delusion is getting higher as people are less and less comfortable with just sitting and being with themselves. And you're pondering and wondering about their own existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, philosophically, I think that's a really interesting point particularly because we're in a phase in history where we have more stimulation than probably we've ever had in the sense that we have so much technological advance so quickly. We have telephones, we have internet, we have television, we have constant stimulation at the palm of our hands literally all the time, certainly in Western affluent cultures. And being able to turn all of that off and sit with yourself and and really literally, as you're saying, just sit and consider who you are and why you are the way you are is not something that most people are all that comfortable doing. I think most people 
will not change unless they're confronted with a life circumstance or a situation that is so unpleasant that they are forced to consider doing it differently. So for example, in therapeutic practice, what do you think the biggest predictor of change is? Or what's the biggest predictor that you're going to go to therapy and try to change? Any ideas? And to me, it would have to be that literally something you take for granted has stopped functioning. You know, like you can't get out of bed anymore or you, you can't make it out the door to work. It's going to have to be something major pattern-based is broken, would be my guess. I'm going to guess yes. some. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> go ahead. And no, indeed, my guess is wrong. In, in, in just by virtue of David's being right, I was going to guess add something to do with relationships no, with other people. Right but, too. Okay. Yeah, no. Well, my, my guess was that either a relationship that you were hoping was going to function or a relationship that was already functioning has broken down is maybe a, another way that I would. Well, that fits the same category. Yeah, I guess that, so. It's that something you rely yes. on has stopped working mm. and you can't understand why and you can't recover from it breaking. Mm. So it'd be, it'd be like a three-part thing. Is that sort of roughly right, Courtney? Yes. The, the biggest predictor is misery. The biggest predictor of whether you're willing to change or not is how miserable you are, which is exactly a version of what you both said. When you're in a relationship that's failing, when something happens to your health, when you literally find yourself brought to your knees because you're in so much pain about the reality of your current life that you cannot tolerate it staying the same. That's when people are willing to change. And in general, that's when people are actually willing to look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, what is going on? How did I get here? Who am I? What do I need to do differently? Because I can't tolerate living like this anymore. See, it's interesting you talk about misery because we've done a couple of episodes on William Glass's work. He was a psychiatrist who I think died about 10 years ago. We did the first one because I loved one of his early books. And then we got one of the instructors from the William Glasser Institute Australia to come on and fill in the bits I didn't understand. But one of the things I love about Glasser, he said, humans love consistency and the most consistent thing is misery. So low-level misery is incredibly sustainable because you know you survived it yesterday, you know you can survive it tomorrow. It has to go from chronic to acute is the argument you're making, isn't it? I think it it really usually does. Sometimes when you see, for example, incredibly mentally ill people who are really, really struggling, they will show up even though it's a pretty chronic condition. But Oftentimes for someone who isn't kind of clinically, psychologically struggling in general, it takes a really acute bringing you to your knees realization about something in your life that causes so much distress that you need to do something else. I think that's accurate. It is such an accurate description of even my experiences with seeking a clinical psychologist for therapy. Um, you hit the wall and then had to do something. Yeah, it was just a, a, a period of immense misery, uh, which yeah. uh, it was was inconsistent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's right. sort of. So in those moments, we get more inspired. We get more inspired in the sense that we realize we have contributed something to getting here, and we aren't willing to stay the same. So desperation really That's can be the beginning of inspiration. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if the start is negative. It's it's another one of these cases that it's a motivator to do something and it can be turned around. It's not like you know, mm-hmm. something being dark or devastating at the time. That's how it's going to stay. It's an impetus for change. And it's whether people can grasp they can change 
and get the toolkit to change? The hope is that people embrace it as a period of change. One thing that I find really fascinating is that when you talk to most people about really, really challenging experiences that they've gone through in their lives, a lot of the times they will say that period was horrific or that situation was horrific or that was the hardest time in my life. But a lot of them will also say, and what a gift it was. I would not want to do it again, but I see that the growth that occurred because of that experience benefited me exponentially. And you even see that with people who've gone through some pretty significant trauma where, you know, the experience was probably horrendous. And once they get to reflect on what they can learn about themselves and how they can evolve from that place, they see some of the gifts of getting more honest with themselves about who they are and how they want to be different. Because the more aware you are of who you are and what you need in this life to live a fulfilling life, the more choice you have to make decisions about the way that you're going to live your life that will lead you to more meaning. And actually, that's somewhat consistent with a lot of what Glasser talked about, that it's the freedom. You give yourself the freedom by being honest to decide what matters to you and how you're going to use your ability to choose to live a life that you really want to live. Yeah, it's really interesting, sort of the the idea that trauma can be the foundation for something. Because I remember when I was looking into the literature on post traumatic growth, I'd been you know doing some work for the Australian Army for special operations units, and a very capable major had said to me, "Yeah, David, why is it they're only interested in studying us once we break? Why don't they look at those of mm. us who don't break?" And you know, he wasn't saying he was indestructible. He was saying, "You know, have my bad days." Some tours have been really bad, but at the end of the day, I've come out of it a better person than I went in. And I remember walking away going, I don't have an answer for you, but when I find it, I'll let you know. And then discovered all the literature on post-traumatic growth. And you realize that 50% mm-hmm. of people come out of a traumatic experience going, I really didn't like that, but I'm not swapping what I learned for anything. And if I have to go through the trauma to get the growth, well, then I'll go through the trauma again. And yet that doesn't get taught to enough people. You know, the U.S. Army tried a, an experiment with this in 2010, 2011, of training a whole pile of units who were about to deploy to Afghanistan and the fundamentals of post-traumatic growth. And it halved the PTSD levels in those units. You know, it's a massive mm. impact. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are, you know, we're, we're educating well, whole populations, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about you know, are you okay, what are you doing to look after your mental health? And yet it seems here there is probably a complete toolkit out of the post-traumatic growth world that you could teach probably everyone starting at teenage age that a difficult day is a chance to learn, a difficult day is a chance to grow. Yes. And that we could be doubling down on that rather than waiting for the chronic condition or the acute crisis. I think that is so well put. And there's there's a field of psychology that's very popular in the US at this point emerging called positive psychology, which doesn't deal so much with mental health or mental health issues, but is really focused on the aspects of us that keep us resilient 
and keep humans afloat during times of crisis and during times of difficulty, or even during times of, of wealth and prosperity and happiness, how can we be our best versions of ourselves? And it is such an interesting idea because humans are actually incredibly resilient. It's kind of amazing. And I do think studying people using your example who have been through trauma in the military and come out of it saying, I'm actually more evolved than before. And that doesn't mean that my experiences were pretty and it doesn't mean that they were fun. In fact, it was really horrendously brutal. But here's how I get through it. These are the things that I do every day to be sure that I am my best self despite what I've gone through. And that is such a wonderful model for life because the reality is life is incredibly hard. Even in the best of circumstances, even when you can say, you know, wow, we are objectively living the dream. We are educated. I have a home to live in. I have food to eat. I mean, when you look at a global perspective, I am living the dream and I still find it hard. And I think most people still find it hard because the reality is I don't really think that life is meant to be easy. But if you go into life with the expectation, as you just said, that you're going to encounter some things that are really challenging for you. And if you can frame that in your mind, not as an inherently negative thing, but as an opportunity for you to get stronger and to understand yourself and to develop some strength and resiliency, you will enjoy your life so much more. Because mm. the, the joy is in how you approach the individual moments, not about the outcomes. You know, it, Absolutely. We have such a fixation on you the, have the very outcomes little control of over the outcome. Yeah. And it's such an interesting thing. Like <laughs> right? after 17 years of teaching undergrads, I find one of the hardest things is over time undergraduates change. And I mm. think because the education system is more and more pressurizing undergraduates, you know, well, before I even get them. So, you know, the primary school, high school education system is putting such an emphasis on you must achieve, you must be doing well. And society is saying mm-hmm. everything's so dangerous. So you double down and they end up with this narrow focus of, I must do well and I must not take risks. And you're going, how mm. do you then teach them to take small hits when mm-hmm. they're so anti? So it would seem to me, if anything, we are making it harder for young people to learn these lessons than it ever was. Like when we were allowed out to go and it's the interesting point, Jonathan Haidt making coddling of the American mind, you know, 30 years ago, eight, nine year olds were allowed to go out with their little friends and do whatever they did until dinner time. So they had their own little world and they, you know, scraped their knees and they got in disagreements and they, you know, got upset at each other and they learned to resolve it under their own steam and learn these little things about being competent and effective and you know, fixing little things. And that now that's moved to 13-year-olds are allowed out to play with their little friends, having not had the experience from 8 to 13 of getting good at it. So that we've made it even harder to start the foundational learning for competence and effectiveness and resilience. Mm-hmm. So much of our learning is experiential. I think that's what I hear you saying most strongly, that We can teach you a lot in school. And my goodness, I really think the purpose of so many school-based situations, including undergraduate or college, going to, to university, the first beginning of university, is 
self-exploration, independent of whatever your major is or whatever your passions are intellectually, this is actually about you understanding who you are and what you care about and how to navigate relationships and friendships and teachers and power dynamics and grades. And the reality is that most of us learn by experiencing those things. And if you're going to jump in and experience life you are absolutely going to make some mistakes, which you're pointing out. And in fact, I kind of hope you do because we're most likely to learn when we're in situations that make us uncomfortable. If you stay in your perfect, comfortable little bubble where you know all the answers and there really isn't as much risk and you trust everybody, you're much less likely to come up against yourself, meaning you're much less likely to have somebody sort of lead you to question yourself. And I would not argue that that's a great model for for life learning. So I love the idea that part of growth as a person is to put yourself in situations that are not comfortable for you and you're not sure how to handle them. And you experiment. You say, you know what? I'm not used to being in this position and I'm going to put myself in it even though I'm uncomfortable. And today I'm going to try this. Maybe I'm going to be more social than I ordinarily would, or I'm going to share with somebody new, which I ordinarily wouldn't do because it doesn't come naturally. You, you think of it as like a big life experiment and see what you learn about yourself in the process. And when you make a decision that in retrospect, you say, you know what, that really didn't work out. That was a bad choice on retrospect. Then you learn from it and you shift and you change and you say, well, I'm not going to do that again. Let me try something else. I think that's such a great model for growth and for life process. Because if you get too comfortable, the universe is going to throw something at you that's going to get you to question yourself. I really do see that. And so why not embrace change and discomfort as the baseline of life instead of trying to put up walls that protect you from feeling anything uncomfortable? You're going to get very isolated and alone very quickly. And I don't think that that's a great model for the human condition. We are social beasts. We are social animals and we learn through relationships. So don't arbitrarily cut those off to keep yourself safe. I think it's a bad model for learning. It's one of the great advantages of, you know, kind of the college system in America. You have to do a basic, you know, undergraduate degree first before you can specialize in anything, giving people more time to actually grow if they want to. So here in Australia, yes. most people do you know one degree and it's their professional degree and they're finished. So there's very little wiggle room in the Australian tertiary education system to grow while you're also qualifying in your chosen field. So okay, the mm. the, the education debt in America might be far worse because you've got the combination of undergraduate and then graduate school. Whereas here in Australia, mm-hmm. your debt will be lower, but your opportunity to grow will be smaller. So the fascinating mm-hmm. thing is that both systems do one half right <laughs> you know, and get the other half horribly wrong. And it's like, we have all this evidence. Surely we can do a better job of this. Now, from watching your TED talk, you walked away from you know, tenure in academia to do other things. That must have been such a big I did. leap. 
It certainly was. It's definitely not the expected route. And I think I surprised and kind of shocked a lot of people, which is okay. I may have even shocked myself. My parents are both professors. I grew up in a very academic environment and I love academia in some ways. I love teaching. I loved my students. I think research is fascinating. I think psychology is fascinating. There are a lot of benefits to being in an academic world. But the reality was that after I got tenure, I really looked at my life and I said, you know, basically what I do right now is I do research that I write and publish for other MDs, PhDs, for other professional doctors that is directly relevant to the lived experience of most humans who will never, ever read it or probably never even know that it exists. And although that's interesting to some degree, I don't really want to do that for my whole life. I think that that's actually not the purpose really of psychology, which is the study of human nature. And that's not to say that I diminish the value of research. It's essential to understanding people. It's the baseline of understanding how things function in a methodologically rigorous way. But my passion had shifted from writing for other professionals to how can I utilize what I know about psychology to actually benefit people, real people, myself, people that I encounter, in addition to people that I work with professionally in terms of patients or people who are really struggling with more severe mental health issues. And that was really a choice that I needed to make for myself, not as a judgment or as a recommendation for others, but I had to admit to myself that I needed to change my whole career. And in some ways that meant changing my whole identity. And that that was really the next place that I needed to make a change in my life. And it wasn't an easy change to make, but it was absolutely the right change for me. And if I had stayed in academia, I was very aware that I was staying for the wrong reasons. I was staying because I was supposed to. I was staying because I had gone to school for you know 10 years to get my doctorate. I was staying to not disappoint my department. I was staying to live up to an expectation that my family had. I was staying to maintain the status of having a tenured position. And when I looked at it really honestly, right, this is where you have to really look yourself in the eye in the mirror and say, wow, I have all these reasons to stay, but none of them are really authentically what I want. And none of them are really authentically what gives my life purpose and meaning anymore. And so if I stay now, I actually am kind of selling myself out. And I can still choose to stay, but I can no longer lie to myself about why I'm doing it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Because I, I had the problem long before I was ever going to get tenure that I was already bored. And the thing I was bored about was... This environment is really good for doing research. This environment is really good for teaching young people. But they're the two opportunities for growth. You can grow the research. You can provide a little greenhouse in which students can grow. But the potential for personal growth Mm -hmm. within academia is actually profoundly low. Because that's not where the focus is. Mm -hmm. The focus is on external Mm -hmm. manifestations of growth. And when you realize that 
those external manifestations, you can take a certain amount of pride in what you can achieve of enabling other people, of underpinning research that then someone will be able to leverage off and grow further. But personal growth is getting slower and slower. And then in my case, I started looking around and going, okay, lots of people around me are very, very smart, but they're also atrophied. They've stopped Mm -hmm. changing and they're doubling down on the professional side of what they do to make up for the personal side and that starts morphing people out of shape. So academia is a place where you've got lots Absolutely. of people who are very strange shapes, <laughs> you know, psychologically, mm-hmm. philosophically. I think that's accurate. And it's like Absolutely. watching it's bad enough but going, one day there's going to be a next bunch of honours students and postgrads looking at me going, yeah, that guy's equally out of shape as everyone else. Mm-hmm. And that seemed the time to run screaming and go, the only way I'm going to be here is to teach undergrads. And I literally you know, walked away from university to consultancy in 2015, just quietly like I'm not going to seek any more teaching. That environment is just too weird. Mm-hmm. And it was only in 2017 when they suspended my former boss that I got a desperate phone call to David, can you come back? There's 120 undergraduates who have no idea what they're doing. And you've got three weeks to fix it if you want the job. <laughs> Courtney, um, I'm hearing uh, two kind of narratives here from, from the both of you, which is that you have a lot of personal growth, uh, I think, you know, both in, in, in David's example and in your example, Courtney. Um, and we're talking a lot about how we each individually can make these choices about you know, uh, taking risks, stepping out from you know, safe environments into ones where you're probably going to experience a little bit of hurt and a lot of growth. Uh, and you raised a point earlier, Courtney, mm-hmm. where you said sometimes that is something that you actually may wish upon someone else, which is an interesting thought because you're kind of saying, you know, actually, I wish you quite a lot of harm because your benefit is going to be, you know, is, is going to be exponentially greater than that, you know. Um, but it's an interesting thing that it would be, you would never kind of say, oh, hey, you know, uh, I think you should quit your job. And <laughs> yeah, but you wish the growth upon people. Yeah. But, you know, quietly in the back of your head. Oh, that's gonna hurt. Yeah, yeah. But so, how? I guess because it, you know, if if you have that desire, how do you think you should approach that kind of situation? I guess I think that's so interesting. Such an interesting take on it. And I, admittedly, a lot of the people that I talk to in my life are struggling because I of the profession that I'm in. Right? Whether whether it's a friend because they know I'm a psychologist and they always want to talk to me about the real stuff because I'm very comfortable with it or a patient or a family member, et cetera. But where I see it more is this. When I meet someone who is describes their life in really flowery, positive ways, let's say, it isn't that I don't wish them to have the positive flowery life. It's really that I don't believe they're going deep enough to tell me the truth. And I think that so many times we find ourselves in social situations where, you know, social norms are be friendly and be pleasant and you don't really want to disclose all the, you know, garbage baggage that you have hidden under there. And I totally respect and understand that. But I think that when people are willing to acknowledge the aspects of their life that they're struggling with is when you will actually get closer to them because they're showing you a more authentic version of themselves. And anytime the reality someone's showing you is overly negative or overly positive, I have a red flag that goes up immediately in my mind because I think life is very gray 
and things are very nuanced and all of us struggle with something. All of us have something that we are trying to work through or process or understand differently. And so I don't trust when people give me the overly positive view that it's really real. I think they're probably covering things up, maybe for good reasons, maybe for not so good reasons. But my hope for them is that they have somebody in their life, maybe a number of people in their life, who they can actually really talk to about what is really hard for them about their current situation in hopes that they will continue to evolve in that area and get support around whatever it is that is hard in their life. It's so interesting because it reminds me of, you know, I'm, re- I'm reading a book at the moment called uh, Trying Not to Try. I can't remember the author off the top uh, of my Edward Slingerland. Edward Slingerland, right? Yeah. And so this is off David's recommendation. Part of this book, uh, which is all about the Chinese concept of uh, ancient Chinese concept of Wu Wei, which is trying not, yes, again, trying not to try, is that people's motivations to do things are not actually always clear to them. They actually don't have much access to the unconscious motivations to why they are doing something. And it sounds to me like in some respect, you're, Mm -hmm. you're diagnosing or you're trying to get people in touch with their true motivations or true feelings behind something when to on the surface level to them before they've had this interaction with you, their idea or their access to their feelings about what they're struggling with or whatever it is, it are true to them to that extent. They just haven't thought about it or you haven't given them the tools necessarily, the, the, the kind of cognitive tools to think about actually my true motivations are this or my real feelings about my struggle right now are this and, and you kind of allow them to move past that. I don't know, would you agree? I <laughs> can absolutely too abstract? see that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. because I do think that psychologically, the goal for all humans, the goal for all of us is to be as honest with yourself as possible about who you are. And so if that's the goal, then that means that part of our personal evolution in this world is to ask ourselves those really hard questions and make the unconscious more conscious. Make the things that you're not consciously aware of and not comfortable with. So you stuff them or you shove them to the side or you engage in the million ways that we lie to ourselves. You're in denial. You rationalize. You do a million things to try to feel better about whatever this information is that's actually not so great. And that whether you're honest with other people or not about your experience is a little bit more of a question mark that depends on who the person is and how safe you feel with them and how comfortable you are with that. But at the end of the day, my hope for people is that they understand themselves as honestly as they can. And the reason for that is the more honest you are with yourself, the more aware you are of your thoughts, feelings, behaviors, motivations, internal conflicts, etc., the more empowered you become to make choices based on that information. And the way to live a meaningful life from my perspective is for each one of us to figure out based on who we are, what do you need to do in this lifetime so that you don't die with a whole bunch of regret? about the choices that you made or the choices that you didn't make for very inauthentic reasons. The more you are consciously aware of yourself and what you're bringing to this life, the more power you have to live the most meaningful life for you. And I think the goal each day is to say, 
based on the information that I have, what am I going to do and who do I want to be? And over time, the information that you have is going to change and evolve because hopefully you're going to continue asking yourself questions and you're going to be continually in circumstances and situations that give you more information about yourself. And so if you take it one day at a time, you may look back in 10 years and go, you know what? That wasn't the right choice. But at the time, I really believed it was. It's very hard to have regret when you think you're making the right choice at the time with the information you have. You can look back and say, you know what? It was totally a mistake, but I wasn't doing it inauthentically. I didn't understand myself well enough. The minute you understand yourself better is the minute you are now responsible for the choices you make today. So for example, with my academic situation, I... I believed I was making the right choice, and I was. I don't regret going into academia for one second. It was a wonderful experience. But once I realized that I no longer had that passion and that my reasons for staying were not very authentic was the minute I was now more responsible for my choices. And that's the human condition. That's what we're each compelled and confronted to do. And my hope that each of us gets strong enough that we're able to acknowledge who we are and what we need each day and do that every day moving forward. What an excellent soundbite. No, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it definitely does. Because that's the thing. There's so much. I don't even know how we got here, but we're so often either focused on the past as we are what happened in the past. No, the past is what you did mm. and now it's gone. Or we're you know, focused on the future because mm-hmm. what are we chasing? And the only important bit really is, what are you doing now? What's the next decision you're going to make? Because that's the bit that you are genuinely in and can do something about this very second. And the past will be the consequences of that. And you've got a a record there of decisions, but that's all it is. And the future you can head towards to a degree, but you're willing to sacrifice now for it. So in some ways, we we lost our temporal focus. We, We forgot to be present. Yeah. So the start of all this is to be you know, present mm-hmm. to yourself and present in the moment and recognize that who you were is gone and who you will be hasn't happened yet. So in both cases, think about them, learn from them, but don't throw away now thinking you can't change the past. We can't change the past, but you can be something different now, which will change what you can be in the future. And that seems to be something that was really confronting for people, the idea that this decision matters And then the next decision matters, and then the next decision matters, and there will be the consequences of that, you know, the litany of positive and disaster, depending on how it goes. (laughs) But still, you will change as your decisions change. Mm. That seems so beyond so many people. It gives so much agency to everyone. Yeah, but agency scares the crap out of people. I guess. Sadly. (laughs) It's so hard. It's very scary. You're more responsible. The more aware you are of yourself, the more responsible you are for the choices you make. And that, that is really the ignorance is bliss reality. We become more responsible once we admit the truth. There's no getting away from that. That is just true. And It's for example, like let's say you realize you're struggling with an addiction. You are drinking too much and you finally admit to yourself that you're drinking too much. If you now have a drink today, it's going to hurt you more. Why? Because you acknowledge that you have a problem and you're not changing your behavior. And that 
is more of a problem for you psychologically because now you're confronted with the fact that not only have you acknowledged you have a problem, but you're not willing to do it differently. That happens to all of us. We are given more information about ourselves each day. And as we learn, we are now more responsible for our choices. The beauty of that, though, is this empowerment, is you get to live in the moment. Your past does not define you. You need to use it to understand yourself, but that's really all it is. You can change this exact moment today. If you're looking at your life saying, you know what, I'm really not okay with the situation I'm in. I'm really not okay with how I am in this relationship or how I'm feeling about this person or how I'm acting in my job environment or whatever, how I'm eating, you literally can pause and say, you know what? I am going to do it differently. I don't even know if it's going to work. I'm not going to focus on the outcome because I don't really have control over the outcome. What I have control over is the effort. And the effort involves my awareness of myself and the choices that I'm going to make today. And I want those two things to be based on who I believe I am and what I believe I need. And you just start there. And I think that's about as good as it's going to get. I really do. I think that that's, that is the goal of being human. Yeah. So, oh, sorry, David. Because that is the foundation. If you can start realizing you can choose to do something differently. And again, we're back to William Glasser again, the importance of choice. You know, you don't get to choose the outcome, but you get to choose, you know, in what way you're going to try and move forward. And that if, You've got that much power. More often than not, things are going to be different today and tomorrow than they were yesterday. Mm. And that's all you need to know is that with difference comes the possibility for very different outcomes. It's from the very small that the very big grow, not the other way around. The grand plan normally can't work because you don't know how to get there. The tiny plan and tiny decisions can carry you a long way because they open up the possibility of the next tiny decision. Absolutely. That's where it starts. If you're really struggling, that's where you start. One day at a time, the little things that you have control over, which inherently means yourself. You have 100% control over you all of the time. And you have very little control over anything else. Or, or <laughs> so anyone. start there. Yeah. Or anyone. But I want to bring that up because I'm not sure that our relationships are defined by the present. They are more often defined by the past. And, uh, and we let that you let that happen yeah. but it's i know i understand yeah. so us three enlightened people in, in the you know in this in this conversation may have a different approach to our relationships when we think of uh you know how how our loved ones or you know uh, friends and family etc approach their lives and act and act now however it's not necessarily reciprocated and it brings it back to that conversation of should we just wish harm on people so they can you know, wake <laughs> up but <laughs> for for those who are especially struggling with their relationships where others are not letting go of the past i'm unsure how to approach that situation yeah. what i would say is that i encourage everyone to try to be more authentic versions of themselves wherever they go in every relationship in their life. And what I mean by that is if there is someone in your life who you are really struggling with or you think they are not in a good place, whatever that means, you can give me a clinical example and I'd be happy to extrapolate. But you have a family member that's a struggle for you. You have a spouse or a relationship romantically that is a struggle for you. Start today by owning your experience. 
Tell the person who you are and how you feel and just let that be because you don't have any control over them, but you do have control over yourself and you can absolutely share how their behavior or their attitudes or their way of being in the world affects you. And then you can say what, if anything, you're going to do about it. So for example, let's say you have a parent who is struggling with depression or a friend who's struggling with depression. They are really negative, constantly wanting to call you and tell you about how miserable they are and how much their life sucks, but no efforts so far have led to them doing anything differently about it, right? Most of us have been in this situation at some point in our life where we really love somebody who's really struggling but appears stuck and unable to do anything differently. Instead of listening on the phone and at some point perhaps rolling your eyes or saying, I listen to this all of the time or whatever, you say, it's really hard for me to hear you talk this way because I love you so much and I see so much potential and I don't see you doing anything to get yourself out of this emotional place. So what I'm going to do differently is when you call me and you want to tell me about how much pain you're in, I'm going to say, I love you so much. When you are ready to do something differently, please call me back. Until that happens, I can't have this phone call with you. Mm. Period. Wow, that's and, and you are that would being be really hard loving. for people. Yeah. You are being respectful. You are being uh, someone who's trying to be supportive, but you are also owning your own experience. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Again, it's surrendering the external control. It's that Glassarian idea. What is it doing to you? Talk about what it's doing to you. Decide how much you can cope with, what you can't cope with, and let someone know what their impact is on you. Yes. And then set boundaries as you need to for yourself because you can't change people, but you can say, gosh, I love you and I am struggling to have you in my life right now because I am not reacting well to this circumstance. So I need to do something differently. I can't make you change. That's on you. I will absolutely love, would love to help you. Maybe you would if you want to try to do something differently, but I now have got to shift what I am willing to do because of how this dynamic is for me. And I think that's actually a very loving thing. I don't think it needs to be mean-spirited. I think it's it's you owning your own experience and what you are willing and not willing to do based on who somebody else is. And in that way, you're shifting your relationship dynamic. Mm. And hopefully eventually that person comes to thank you for saying those things because it may be the very thing that shifts them into gear. Yeah, but either way, they've got more information than they had before about the impact that they're having. So the whole point is we are social, so nothing is ever just about us. No, The implications of us gets exploded onto everyone around us, whether we're aware of that or willing to take any responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, we are social and we love people and we are limited and we are who we are. And owning that wherever you go, I think is such a gift because oftentimes we don't want to tell people the truth. There are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them, especially with someone you love, is that you don't want to hurt their feelings. So people will go around the world lying to various degrees 
because they don't want to hurt their feelings. They don't want the consequences going to come with it. They don't want to fight. They don't want whatever. It's easier to just go with it or tell a lie or argue with yourself in your own head than tell them the truth. And I actually think it is unbelievably refreshing as a person to have someone honestly reflect back what they see. It is a gift. Anytime somebody offers you feedback about yourself, even something you do not want to hear, please pause and say thank you. And before you reject whatever it is that they said, pause and spend some time thinking about what is it about what they're seeing in me is an actual accurate reflection of me. Because it is a gift when people tell you the truth. I'll give you a small example. I have a a young daughter and like a lot of kids, she likes to do drawings and paint. And sometimes her paintings are really awesome and sometimes they're really not. And my tendency as a parent was to say, yeah, honey, that's just wonderful. That is a beautiful painting. I love it. It's awesome. And at some point, I remember thinking, you know, that is just really an ugly painting. Like, I really don't like that one. And so I said to her, you know, honey, that's just really not one of my favorites. And the look on her face was kind of like, wow, mom, thanks for telling me the truth. You know, I don't really like this one that much either. But, you know, I really, I really would rather have you tell me which ones you really like. And there's something magical about that. There's something magical about something very simple, like my daughter's art, to friends talking about deep, provocative, compelling things. When you trust someone enough to say, look, I love you. I think you're wonderful. This is what I see. I see that you struggle with intimacy. I see that you struggle with being honest with yourself. I see you in this dysfunctional relationship. And I hear you telling me about how much your partner sucks all the time. And you don't seem to be willing to look in the mirror to say, why are you with him then? You know, any of that, people may really not want to hear it. It may hurt their feelings. And at the end of the day, I think it's such a gift to both of you to be more honest. Wow. Yeah. But we have to get strong enough and confident enough to be honest. <laughs> yes. And the delivery matters. <laughs> I say that truthfully because. Sometimes in our romantic relationships, especially when we get into heated fights or in family, but you know, oftentimes I see this in couples where we're really hurt, we're in pain, we're insecure, and the feedback may come out in ways that are very biting and harmful and mean. That's going to be really tough for any of us to hear. So trying to frame your feedback, not just saying, I just want to be honest with you, you're a horrible person right? Like, well, that's really not helpful because that's not honest feedback. Getting calm and centered in yourself and trying to reflect what you say in a respectful way where the goal is, let me give you some observations I have about you in the hopes that this information is helpful for you or for us to have a better connection. Totally. Yeah, the honesty is normally in our heads immediately, but the emotion at the time will normally color it with being too nice or too mean. So it's somehow keeping the observation and just calming down. Articulating it. And again, this is the the thing of teaching very passive, very risk-averse undergraduates. (laughs) That the overwhelming thing that pops into my head is to scream at them. (laughs) But it's like, and how do we make this positive? And it becomes a more and more creative game Mm. over a semester Mm -hmm. to keep making Mm -hmm. it 
constructive and not too hurtful. You know, the, you want the boxing glove on when you hit them. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of a Jordan Peterson lecture that I once watched, right? Which you know, he talks about lying, where he says, you know, but the truth is effectively. Uh, all of reality. It is everything that's kind of external to your mind, right? Like it, these, these are the things that are happening it, irrespective of whether you think they are real or not or true or not, rather. And, you know, when you lie, you're, you're putting something out there that, is, that um, you are so small and there is a whole lot of reality and you're going to, as a, as a small being, come into contention with all of the reality that is out there and try and weigh in against that. And I just... I love that kind of metaphor or um, just phrasing because I can't think of anything more compelling to say not to lie. Because you go with the truth because it's big and you're little. Yeah, exactly. It's a good. Well, I think of that cognitive dissonance song I played to you guys in Complex Problem Solving. Yes. You know, we're, again, most people don't acknowledge the extent to which cognitive dissonance hurts their day. Mm. You, know, you can tell yourself mm-hmm. whatever story you like. You notice that your brain hurts? That's called cognitive dissonance. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, learn to go, oh, that hurts. Gee, I'm probably lying to myself. Mm. Mm, I'm probably lying to other people. <laughs> mm. Anytime someone comes to me and says, Courtney, how can I learn to be more honest with myself? The number one recommendation I have is notice your emotional reactions. When you have a reaction, a strong emotional reaction to something, whether it's bliss or it's misery or it's sadness or it's hurt, pause. Just stop whatever you're doing and ask yourself, what does this say about me? What does this emotional reaction trigger in me? What can I learn from myself about this? What is it in my current life situation at this very moment that is bringing up this amount of emotion, this amount of affect? And how can I learn about myself in this moment because of it? Because so often it's hard for us to see where we lie to ourselves because it's serving a function. It's serving a protective function where we don't want to acknowledge the truth, which relates to your cognitive dissonance idea. Absolutely. But if you can pause when you're having a strong reaction, you now have the opportunity to dig deeper. And I think that's really the only way that you're going to start to become more aware of all those crannies in your mind and in your psyche that are wedged in there from a whole lot of insecurity and discomfort that you do not want to acknowledge or see. It's when you pause and are willing to be introspective about those painful life moments in the actual moment that it's happening. And that's the interesting thing of this idea of extreme emotions, your big emotions they often seem in other people like, well, why is that person responding in such a big way to such a middle-of-the-road moment? And it's easy to look at other people and think it, but being able to reflect yes. on yourself and go, you know, okay, why did I just have a big emotional response to something pointless? Mm. So it is a really yes. good tell. You know, so many um, yes. historical traditions. So, you know, back to you reading Edward Slingerland's book, Tim, mm. you know, the idea of Wu Wei, this idea of effortless action. So, uh, Courtney, it's essentially the the ancient Chinese version of Stoicism in a lot of ways. You practice it how you want to be 
so that when you're stressed or tired or whatever else, you've got a process for you know, behaving better and it becomes instinctual. You don't do what used to be unconscious. You do the new thing you've trained yourself to of a better process of being more reasonable, of aiming for equanimity. And I was trying to remember the word before and it is, you know, mm. the closest translation is equanimity. And you know, it didn't really matter if it was the ancient Romans, mm-hmm. the ancient Greeks, the ancient Chinese. They all had this focus on equanimity. That if you could get your head in the right mm. space, you could experience everything. There'd be highs and lows, but they tended not to be too extreme because in the main, they don't need to mm-hmm. be. Mm. The more extreme they are, the more you're trying to artificially shape yourself to respond in a way you think is going to make you feel better or someone else feel better or put on a better performance for the world. So there's something in achieving a state of equanimity. Mm. And that's not sort of the Buddhist nothingness. <laughs> Yeah, equanimity is, is very different to mm-hmm. to the nothingness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're all going to experience emotion. Emotions are not bad. Even negative emotions are not bad. They're part of life. And in fact, you probably wouldn't have a lot of joy or happiness if you didn't also feel some pain and sadness. So I absolutely see that. And I think you know, one of the reasons emotions are so helpful to focus on when you're having a strong reaction is that oftentimes we think that our reaction is reflective of the current moment only, as opposed to reflective of who we are and what the current moment has to tell us about what it's triggering in us that is unresolved about who we are, which oftentimes goes back to our past. But it really goes back to what you learned from your past about who you are and what the current circumstance is bringing up for you that's in conflict with that. And so it applies also to when you realize that what you're saying and what you're doing don't match. Anytime you're acting in a way that is absolutely in contrast to what you claim to be or who you claim to be or how you claim to want to act, pause. Something's not right. And you're going to feel it. And if you can feel that and say, what can I learn from this? You are on your path to being more honest with yourself and developing a more authentic identity. Yeah, getting getting thought and action back in balance and emotion and thought and action, mm-hmm. the three things. To, mm-hmm. So yeah, John Paul Sartre's wonderful comment. That, yeah, yeah, that you, relates to what you were saying with equanimity because – you still might have a reaction. Life is not easy. There might be things you go through that are really hard, but your reaction will hopefully be more consistent with what Joe Schmo on the street would kind of expect, as you said, right? Where if an objective person was watching, they would say, oh yeah, you know, that might be irritating or that might be upsetting or that might even be really hard, but it won't be so out of proportion with the actual situation. And that's, I think one of those things that I have to be very careful of, you know, I get frustrated being blind that things take too long or that things are too difficult. You know, simple shit, Mm. like I'll drop my keys Mm. and I'll be like, okay, grid search the floor to find my keys. There's three minutes of my life I'm never getting back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in in me is the potential for those (laughs) tiny things to burst into incandescent rage Mm. because it's such a waste of time. Mm. And I just know, Mm. well, that's, Mm. that's disproportionate. That's stupid. Let it go. Because if I keep Mm. engaging in that disproportionate Mm. response, it's going to bleed into other things and color other things, 
where it's only going to cause harm because that much excess emotional energy is only going to be detrimental. Mm. Mm. So that path toward you know, to return Absolutely. to equanimity is, I think, a way for people to get their head around this. You know, if you think your responses are too big, they are. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> a good start for mm. making sense mm-hmm. of being a bit more honest and with they're, self. they're about something else. Right. Even your example with the keys. It's not about the keys. It's about feeling like you're wasting your time and it's harder for you than it would be for somebody who was seeing and probably a whole host of other things. Right. And once you can acknowledge that, beautiful. Now you understand something about yourself. Work with it. And if you can get one of those things worked out, no other things much harder than the first one. Yeah, well, and you it's can just put another bit into, of information. Mm-hmm. You can put that into so much practice that again, even the act of being honest with yourself and about yourself is an effortless action. I suppose you could eventually make that such a habit that it it's second nature almost to stop and pause every time you have an emotional reaction. Well, I think in some ways that's where the Taoists tried to go in the same way it's where the Stoics tried mm-hmm. to go. That you could be so reflective so quickly with mm-hmm. so little effort that what you really did was you stopped yourself doing dumb things. Mm. They just didn't get to bud and grow. The brain already assessed and went, mm-hmm. well, that's out of proportion. Or that's not going to help. Or why are you being different to the person you want to be? And that that's the end of it. Mm. Things just don't kick yes. off. And, and then imagine the consequences, positive consequences that would have for the world if everyone did those, you know, and everything was in proportion and everyone was reflective, you know, it, even as nations, rather, even on the world stage, things would be so different. <laughs> yeah, well, again, scale is always one of those things that how many people are going to get to a point of wanting to be this way. And that's the thing, you've got to want this awareness. Yeah. It's not going to happen to anyone by accident. You do. It's going to happen to someone by accident, but they're not going to. Know it what to not. do with it. <laughs> well, I lived in hope someone might just get dumb luck once. <laughs> All right, no dumb luck once. Fair it's enough. Tremendous practice. Mm. Yeah, mm. and that's the thing. It's David. So David Eagleman made the wonderful point in his book, The Brain, where he said, "Yeah, ninety-seven percent of what's going on in our heads is unconscious. Three percent is conscious. But if you work at something long enough, you can burn it down into your unconscious." And I like that imagery of burning something down into your unconscious, that this thing of just watching and being aware of self, going, self, why are you revving up? Self, why are you hiding? Mm -hmm. Self, why are you being disproportionate? Mm -hmm. Self, why are you feeling disrupted and perturbed? Even those five little Mm -hmm. questions, if they can just be normalized to most of the time, they pop up unbidden and help you resolve things before you open your mouth and stick your foot in it. (laughs) (laughs) That's already a pretty big game. Yep. Well, I'm feeling very empowered after this conversation. I think I'm going to go home and be possibly too honest. (laughs) Yeah, look, a friend of mine used to have a signature line on internet forums, telling the truth means not having to remember what you said. Yes, exactly. But he needed another line on it because I'm going to try and be polite about what I say. (laughs) Because he always was. Mm. He would speak, you know, speak the mm. most in-your-face truth, mm. but so nicely you couldn't get snotty. So, you know, Courtney, to put it in perspective for you, this is a friend of mine who'd been a Navy SEAL. We're chatting one day on Skype and he goes, David, I'm really glad you're blind. I'm like, okay, David, count to ten. Don't respond disproportionately. This is going to be bad. <laughs> I'm like, John, why are you glad that I'm blind? He goes, well, if your eyes had worked, you'd end up doing the same job I did in Australia and you'd be as screwed up as me and all my friends. 
Whereas you can work stuff out and tell us how to do it better. So I'm glad you're blind. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm glad I gave you the extra 15 seconds there or this was going to get really heated. <laughs> so you're giving yourself the 15 I seconds. I can see that, absolutely. To calm down and go, hang on, why is brain doing this? Don't open yep. my, my mouth until brain knows why or at least stops being yes. disproportionate. Mm. Is a start. And it's something that everyone can have a go at. Why am I being disproportionate? How do I want to be more balanced and go from there? I 100% agree. Making decisions out of reactivity, whether it's what you're going to say next or a large life decision, it's not a good plan. We don't think very clearly when we're reactive emotionally. So try to pause, just like you said, pause first before you do anything else. From my experience of teaching 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you know, you can get them to grasp the idea of stop for a second fairly easily. How do you maybe try and teach little children the beginning of, you know, have the thought, have the feeling, but just wait a second. At what age are little growing brains ready to build the pause and ponder in? Is there sort of a point in, in intellectual development that is the right time to introduce this idea or is it very much dependent on the, on the little human in question? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And I would say that it's never too early to plant those seeds. And I actually would say that about almost anything with kids. I mean, you need to be developmentally appropriate. You don't want to scare them. But even from the time that little kids have ten- temper tantrums, which is very developmentally normal, and you know you don't want to pathologize something that's normative but one of the things that we start teaching from you know 2 years old is don't hit you got to take a deep breath you know that's a version of a pause that's a version of hey you're having a strong reaction why don't you hit this pillow instead of hitting your sibling or why don't you you know take take a moment and go out of this room before you throw that you know stuffed animal and break something like pause. And, you know, that's like a two-year-old version of let's just start focusing on pausing. And that doesn't mean you're not going to have the emotion. It means that I want to help you learn how to express the emotion in a way that doesn't hurt you or people around you. And I think you can start teaching that very young. It doesn't mean that they're going to be able to understand it, right? And so some of that developmentally is different, like children even through elementary school, oftentimes have very difficult time with impulse control, right? So the idea that for all kids, you could get them to stop blurting things out or saying mean things or screaming is probably unrealistic. But you can at least start working with them to get them to notice how they're feeling and to try to give it a name. Yeah. It it reminds me of some of the stuff that William Glasser and his his second wife did in setting up like a, a school system, you know, the quality school system, that they asked little kids on their first day of school as a group, do you want rules? And the kids, of course, go, no. So for two mm-hmm. or three days, the staff just make sure the kids don't hurt each other. But, you know, mm-hmm. if someone wants to steal someone's lunch, they let it initially happen. If someone in the sandpit puts t- sand down someone's T-shirt, they let it happen. Mm-hmm. And two or three days in, it's like, okay, you've had a few days without rules, do you want to stay this way? And it's a mass, no. And the kids come up with their first set of rules. They, you know, they couldn't have thought up the rules 
as an intellectual exercise, but through experience, they can see the benefit of this pause and transition. So even if they don't know what to mm-hmm. do with pauses, they can still learn from experience. So even an occasional pause is going to be just that little bit more thinking time to mediate the extremes of experience. And that's still a win then. I think so. I think it's a huge win. Start well, as so. young as you can. Mm. Yeah. Start the, the growth towards reflection without having yes. to give them the big speech about reflection. Because I'm not sure most 18-year-olds want the speech on reflection because the idea of quiet time with their own thoughts is now so uncomfortable. Absolutely. But you know what they do want? They want someone to say, hey, have you struggled dating? And they're all going to raise their hand. And you say, do you notice you have strong emotional reactions sometimes to people you're dating? And they all raise their hand and you say, you know what's going to really help you? For you to pause when you have that moment and for you to ask yourself, what is it that you can learn about yourself and why is this moment hard for you? And they will all practice. (laughs) I I think one of the things I see so much in college students that I work with anyway is that they crave understanding psychology because if you can make it relevant to their life, they're all struggling with these things because of the, the developmental phase they're in. They're all, you know, dating and falling in love and managing friendships and trying to figure out how to be an adult. And, you know, it's a beautiful time for them to get some tools to practice. Well, I'm going to have to start wrapping the podcast up there, I think, Courtney. Is there anything that you want to mention that perhaps you didn't get time to or anything that you would like to let our listeners know about what you're up to currently? Maybe we'll do those separately. Let's start with anything that you would like to mention that uh, we didn't cover in the podcast. I think one thing I would love for listeners to know is to remain hopeful. Because once you start looking at yourself honestly, you may be confronted with some really painful life realities and some really painful memories about your past that have led you to this point. And to remember that it is the processing of that information and the honest reflection around it that will make you empowered in the moment today. So have hope, stay strong, get through it, because I fundamentally believe that that your outcome will be better for doing it. Mm. Yeah, the real the minute you realize your past is simply that you're past. And that the minute you start making changes in the present, you don't just have a reason to have hope, you have evidence of why it works. Mm. Absolutely. And you'll give yourself more evidence as you make changes and realize that you feel a lot better. <laughs> so it's reinforcing. So again, it's evidence-based. So your know, hope eventually ends up being or I have hope because there's evidence that making change works. You know, hope yes. is a consequence of doing something, not a mythical thing to believe in. The evidence is there the minute you start reflecting and making changes. Yes, and you'll feel it. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I guess to finish up, Courtney, is there anything that you would like to mention uh, about Choose Honesty uh, or, or, or any of the other, other work that you're doing? Sure. Well, I still do a lot of, of empirical journal article publications, which probably many of the listeners wouldn't want to read either. Or if you would, I'd be happy to send them to you. But I do a lot of writing on my website, which is choosehonesty.com. And I write a blog for Psychology Today, which is a large sort of media-based magazine platform for, for psychological research translated to the lay reader. And you're welcome to send me an email or, or get 
signed up for the blog, which is free, to read about things that I'm doing research-wise, and most of it is focused on honesty. Well, we'll have that website linked in the description below as well. Yep. Well, finally, thank you so very much, Courtney Warren. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the on the podcast, and I've certainly benefited from the discussion. So again, thank you for yourself and for David for helping me come to some realizations as well. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Courtney. Like trying to teach eighteen year olds to reflect, it's really made me think that I'm just going to try and use the word pause with them because mm. they need a word that's that. less, you know, less in their face. Something that can mm. ease them in rather than demand a response. Mm. And I think that that's, a, that's something I can immediately make use of to try and mm. make teaching more effective. Mm. I love that. <laughs> well, with that said, thank you very much, Courtney. And thank you, David. And thank you, listeners. You'll hear from us next time. Right. Thank you, everyone. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.